that's the message that I've been trying to share everywhere that I go, whether it was in an Epsom-based debate, one of the wealthiest electorates in the whole country, and just trying to tell them that actually private health insurance will not save you in an emergency. We've got children and young people who are not able to access the health care that they need, and we've got young people, young professionals, who also can't access the care that they need and also aren't paid very well, and they're all thinking about leaving New Zealand. And so these, these issues are all interlinked, and how are we going to get a well-funded aged residential care facilities in New Zealand when we're not going to have the young professional tax base to actually pay for it. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Welcome to this special episode of Revolving Door Syndrome. So we've had a little bit of a hiatus, kind of unexplained, um, but I think it's also probably like a really good uh, opportunity for us to talk about a year of Revolving Door Syndrome where you've got 20-something episodes out and we've met some really amazing people. But we've also had some stuff that's happened in our own personal lives which we haven't really shared like heaps about. Mm. I think it's probably time to share about it. And who I've got uh, on this episode actually is a really special person to me who is the executive producer, the editor, the man behind the podcast, my partner, Connor Aliff. Welcome to the episode, Connor. Hey, it's great to be here. (laughs) Don't often hear this voice. I think we first episode I was on that and after hearing my voice on the episode I wasn't never again. Never, I was like, nope, nope, no, nope, I'm gonna leave the podcasting to you. I'll just be behind the scenes. <laughs> but after the year that we've just had, I think it's probably it feels about right to sort of have a conversation between the two of us and um what the last year has been and what the podcast has become. Yeah, I mean, I'm really proud of what we've done so far with Revolving Door Syndrome. Like, I think we've really stuck to the co-papa of what we started it for. And we've kept it going, you know, 20-something episodes, which is amazing, and we're going to keep it going. As the name suggests, Revolving Door Syndrome, it's about uh, the systemic issues that perpetuate inequities ongoing. And a lot of the, we see a lot of these in all sectors of our society and all sorts of public services, right? So we've done a lot of stuff on education, healthcare, justice system, all of these things that are so interlinked with each other. And there's so many different perspectives and avenues to explore these issues. So I'm really glad that we've had such a great range of people on this podcast. But I think this is a great time for us to reflect on what else has been happening? Because I think, you know, I, I do, I guess in the episodes, try and share a little bit about my own experiences and things like that. But, you know, obviously most of the episodes are about the people that I brought on, um, which is why I think it's great I've brought you on this time of this episode. Yes. No, I think so. I think I obviously get to see a lot of things which which no one else would get to see. And you talk quite a lot about your own experiences in the hospital. I feel but- like with a podcast, I mean, because I am there talking to the people, interviewing people, but you're the one that has to sit there and listen to the podcast recordings and edit the podcast recordings. And you probably know what I've said back to front a lot more than what I've I, said. I can, sometimes, almost, I can almost quote you, Derek. 
Because sometimes I listen to the podcast episodes again, but, you know, sometimes I don't have time to and I just re- remember what I remember. But I think you probably know the episodes better than I yeah, do. Yeah, imprinted, imprinted right, <laughs> right in the brain. Yeah, you appreciate them in a different way when you go through it sort of more meticulously. And that is what I try to do is go through the episodes meticulously and add some polish because there's some, some of the I reckon episodes, I've gotten better though. You, I've you've definitely better. got, and I think that's really noticeable is one of the things you find is that start of the podcast you know, I think a lot of editing, a lot of editing. And now, you know, I think um, you've definitely grown into into a beautiful butterfly of a podcast host. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And recently I've been on a couple of other people's podcasts and it's quite interesting because you flip from being the interviewer to the interviewee and you're like, oh, it's just like breath, breath of fresh air because you get to just like sit back and relax and just have some yarns. I think sometimes when I bring people on this podcast, they get a little bit nervous in terms of like, oh, saying the right thing and all that. And I'm like, you know, when I flip into being the interviewee, I'm like, oh, this is actually way easier. Because when you're the interviewer, you have to be thinking about what am I saying? What am I going to ask? Where am I going to take this conversation? And you have to be listening to what the person is saying and responding appropriately and trying to guide them to the kind of topics that you want to talk about. It's like a lot of things to be thinking about. Mm, It's a real art. It's a real skill. So I think you also, I think a lot of people attempt podcasting. There's a lot of people start podcasts. I think what one one statistic that sticks with me is that the average number of episodes for a podcast on Spotify is three, three episodes. I think that's a lot of it. It's just people start podcasts and they've got a really good idea, but it's really hard to keep going because it is just one of these things you have to, to stick at. And so it is, it's, it feels like a long way when you first start a podcast. Like, oh, the idea of producing like having 20 something interviews, it feels like a long way, but yeah, you sort of chip away at it each time and, and you slowly get there and build a bit of a audience and the people who listen to the podcast really appreciate that. And you get that in the messages that you receive directly. You personally receive them. Yeah. I think the podcast has been really good. I mean, thanks to you, you're the one who basically pressured me into doing this podcast. So Positive thank peer you. pressure. Positive peer pressure. And I think through that we've gained a, like, a lot of opportunities. It's made me much more outspoken as an advocate for all of these issues. I think you made me join LinkedIn, which made me share a lot of my ideas a lot more to other people. And I think there's like a real dearth of healthcare workers on LinkedIn. Like there obviously there are some, but I think, you know, LinkedIn is mostly populated probably by, you know, business people. Entrepreneurs. uh, Entrepreneurs who might not necessarily understand what's going on in healthcare. And so I think that's been really great, like an opportunity. So from the podcast to LinkedIn and then through that, kind of through that, kind of through other things, then getting connected with Raf Manji, who's the leader of the Opportunities Party. And then this opportunity landed into my lap of running for MP, which is basically what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, five months, mostly. Well, I'd say it was, a, I'd say it's basically a year now. Basically really, a year, really basically a year. The start of the campaign was from when you said Yes, I'll do and that it. And that was November, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a really busy month, busy year. So what, like a year, a little over a year ago, we decided to start the podcast. Well, we released the first episode in August of last year. At the same time, I just started working in adult emergency 
where I'd never worked in adult emergency before, suddenly my brain was, I don't know, saying that it was really happy. Yay, learning new things. Which, I don't know, I think my brain is like addicted to things that are like novel and exciting and high stakes and things like that. Mm. And then it sparked me into being like, oh, okay, well, I guess you should start studying for your pediatric exams while you're working in the adult emergency I'd department. Also, I'd also like to say that I think that was also... That was also probably you. A little bit. A little, only because, only because I think you have... you have quite a lot of imposter syndrome and you've acquired a bit of prodding and pushing to be like, no, no, you can do this. No, no, was, the things I could achieve if I was born a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think there, there was quite a lot that's happened this year. We've done the podcast. I sat my um, pediatric written exams and I also had to sit my pediatric clinical exams. Thankfully, I passed all of those, but um, it was really challenging having to do everything. So that's the year that's been really. Mm. Um, and, and, the hi- and, the, and the hiatus that we've had recently has kind of just been a culmination of all of this, the pressure building from the campaign, which is all of our energy and time resources are going to be sucked into that, which is why there's been a bit of a And also I guess like why I decided to run in that campaign for running for member of parliament is sort of feeling like there was like a dearth of healthcare workers in sort of this political space as well. Like not a lot of chat about health. When I first met Raf, the leader of the Opportunities Party in early 2022, one of the things that I said to him was, you know, what are you going to do about health? Because health is going to be a big hot topic for 2023. We've just come out of a pandemic. We're going through a a major healthcare reform. People should be talking about health, you know. I think a lot of healthcare workers don't know who to vote for, all of these sorts of things. And that's why I ended up doing it. And also, like, I wanted to take a break from working in healthcare because I don't know if people realise it from listening to the podcast, but probably, you could probably read between the lines, but, like, working in healthcare is pretty hard right now. And I think a lot of healthcare workers are burned out, probably me included. Like, I think I've been chronically teetering between burnout and being okay since I basically started medical school because Mm. it's just really, really tough. And so that's probably one of the reasons why I decided to run for MP, really. And and so you thought, and you thought, I'll take a break from... A break I'll from working a break from working in the hospitals that are on fire. Well, I was working to like... To just do something casual. Just well, I was working like almost 70 hours a week and then like having to study and be on be in hospital on top of that to prepare for exams and things like that. And it's just insane. And I was also having to look after patients that were really sick. And when you're in that mind space where you're exhausted from your clinical work, exhausted from your studying and other stuff. And people are like, oh, you're doing too much. And I'm like, well, actually doing the podcast and kind of preparing a little bit for the campaign. Like those were the two things that were like giving me meaning because the work that I was doing, it didn't feel meaningful because it felt like it was just putting out fires rather than actually trying to change the system. And that's how I see the podcast and running for MP was, was how can I change the conversation? How can I get people thinking about healthcare differently? And because you can change the laws, but to change the laws and make them meaningful and make them last, you have to change how people think socially as mm, well. You've got to right? change the culture yeah. in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that do you feel you've done that? Do you feel you've achieved that? I think all change really for it to last has to be incremental to like a degree, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't like 
have transformational change just from one person's actions. It's about how can one person change the minds of a few people and how can those few people change the minds of another few people, right? Like with our podcast, we've grown it basically through word of mouth and a little bit of social media, right? Like we haven't spent any money on advertising. It's just been people sharing the podcast themselves with like other people. And I think while it'd be great if we had more people listening, but you know, I really appreciate our listeners. We had like between 800 and 1,000 listeners per month, right, at our peak, which is awesome. That's really awesome for a podcast that is running on very little money. But, you know, shout out to Midworld for sponsoring us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Sam Hazarden. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I did achieve that. I think a lot of people really liked what I had to say about healthcare. A lot of people with the Opportunities Party, I was able to write most of the healthcare policy. And I think people really liked it because a lot of the feedback that we got from our health policy was that this is the one health policy out of all the parties that would actually be sensible and it would be actually be actionable and mm. it would actually be effective. You know, even my dad, who probably mostly votes national, even he, you know, at the last minute I was able to swing him to vote for the Opportunities Party because he's like, at the end of the day, you've got the best healthcare policy. But I guess the one issue with meaningful, like good healthcare policy from politicians when we've got a three-year election cycle is that the general public and the politicians, they want interventions that show progress within that three-year cycle. Mm. And I, I guess the issue with our healthcare policy probably is that there wasn't enough that, was, that would show short-term gains. Uh, and that's why policies where it's like, oh, we'll fund this many cancer drugs just seems really effective because that's something that people can see. It pulls see on people's heartstrings. Now, and it pulls on people's heartstrings. Mm. And I think it's really challenging as a healthcare worker because you don't want to see politicians making those sorts of decisions. Politicising health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I guess, you know, we're kind of politicising health as well by having a healthcare policy, but everyone has to have a healthcare policy, right? Yeah, but sort of politicising health in the sense that you're, you're using certain certain illness, certain disease, yeah. which arguably is not, that's not the role of politicians. Arguably their role is to, to direct funding and create long-term visions and solutions that can implement. But as you say, the, the sort of the three-year cycle that we have sort of stimmies any kind of... Yeah. And I think the thing is like, the more I realise it, like I would say probably, I wasn't very politically engaged until a year ago, right? I was relatively politically agnostic. I voted, sure, but did I get involved or did I really think about stuff like to a deep degree previously? No, I didn't. I mean, I only turned 29 this year and a lot of young people don't aren't engaged probably because a lot of politicians don't really talk to them and a lot of people like their parents probably don't talk to them much other than saying, oh, you should just vote for whoever we vote for, right? Yeah. And then so I would say that like previously, sure, I could probably like lend left a little bit, but I think most young people do. Probably a lot of healthcare workers do because we see a lot of the effects that poverty and inequality has on healthcare outcomes. Mm. And then I think more the more time I spent thinking about politics and thinking about what the different parties are saying and all that, the realisation that like... <sighs> We really should be depoliticizing things like health. Health shouldn't be... It shouldn't be something that come election time that we go, look at what this party's done for health, look at all this, they're messing it all up. And it's like the issues that we have are so deeply entrenched 
over decades, it's not the responsibility or the issue caused by one single government. Yeah, like but, it's, that, it's, but that's what we do. We lay the blame at the feet of the current government. Yeah, when it's sort of like a, a feat of the best cooperation ever that, you know, both Labour and national governments over the last several decades have sort of messed up our healthcare system, right? I think, that it's was, not- one of, I think that was one of your best lines in used at <laughs> the, the debate. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's not a left or right issue. It's it's an everybody issue, mm. right? Like healthcare affects everybody. It affects you with, whether you're a baby or an elderly person. Health it, affects it, you cradle to grave. And it affects you as well whether or not you kind of are sort of rich or poor because those things have flow and effects, right? That the, in our hospitals, if our hospitals are clogged up with people with preventable illness, it does not matter if you pay for XYZ private healthcare insurance. Well, I mean, at the moment, right? The, at the moment, because our acute hospitals are publicly funded services, private health insurance doesn't mean anything, right? Mm. Really, if you're acutely unwell and you're in an emergency. But that could change, right? You look at what's happening in America or what's always happened in America, which is a completely privatized healthcare system. We could be heading that way. We could be heading into a situation where just like America, where all healthcare is provided privately through private health insurance. And so every time, so in America, every time you access healthcare, just about every time, there is somebody in the middle clipping the ticket every time that you try and access healthcare, the health insurance providers. So in New Zealand, if we don't do anything about our public health services, that, that could happen, right? Because more and more of our public healthcare workers are leaving the profession either to go overseas, go work in private or leave healthcare completely. And that's the message that I've been trying to share everywhere that I go, whether it's because I was running for MP in the Epsom electorate. So whether it was in an Epsom-based debate, one of the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest electorates in the whole country and just trying to tell them that actually private health insurance will not save you in an emergency. And I think people are starting to think about that actually. They started to think about themselves. They started thinking about, oh, wow, we've got a really underfunded aged aged residential care sector that a lot of these retirees who are wealthy, they might end up needing that service in a not too distant future. We've got children and young people who are not able to access the healthcare that they need. And we've got young people, young professionals who also can't access the care that they need and also aren't paid very well. And they're all thinking about leaving New Zealand. And so these these issues are all interlinked. And how are we going to get a well-funded aged residential care facilities in New Zealand when we're not going to have the young professional tax base to actually pay for it? No, you're right. And I think no one's thinking. I mean, we started this conversation with is great. Yeah, but I don't think, I think, again, I don't think anyone really wants to address it. And by, by addressing it, sort of, it's ripping off the band-aid and it's going, this is an issue and we all have to face it. And I think that no one is prepared to deliver the bad news and say, actually, things have got to change. Yeah, and well, I mean, uh, what I would people, like to see yeah. is more cooperation between parties of all, all, all sorts of the spectrum to improve healthcare. Because I think, like I said, it's not a left or right thing. It's an everybody thing, right, in healthcare. Yeah. But I guess what I worry about is privatisation by stealth. So the more we defund the public healthcare system, the more people will want to rely on the private healthcare system. I've got friends asking me, oh, do you think I should get private health insurance? And I'm like, this isn't like a question that I can answer for you. You've got to make that decision for yourself, really. But I think increasingly more and more people are going to be thinking about putting money into private health insurance instead of being like, 
should we pay more tax that would be going directly into healthcare? So, I mean, but I think that this healthcare problem, it's, it's going to be an issue for a long time. And looking worldwide, most developed countries are struggling with healthcare right now. Because every time in Western healthcare and the Western model, which is about treating disease and not about prevention, every time we get better at treating a disease, people live longer, but they live longer with more complex health issues. And then it just sort of snowballs to greater and greater burden on our, ta- on our health system in terms of the amount of care and the complexity of the care that we bring. I saw this like really interesting post on LinkedIn and it was talking about job creep and complexity creep. And when we talk about things like, I really value the the work that nurse practitioners bring to emergency departments in all sorts of places because they definitely help out. But what the secondary effect of that is that because nurse practitioners will take on like the less complex tasks and freeze up the times for doctors to do the more complex stuff, what that ends up doing is that as doctors we end up only looking after really complex patients. Mm. And then what I noticed in the emergency department is that we're trying to like make things way more efficient so patients who would previously come through the door and get seen by a doctor they'll just get seen by the nurse assessing them and then they'll the nurse will discuss with the consultant the senior doctor who's on call and then that senior doctor without well maybe eyeballing the patient would be like okay well we need these tests blah 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 and then just refer them on to like another specialty without being properly seen by somebody at the door which it doesn't necessarily change anything in terms of the the wait time or anything like that but at least when they get seen by somebody all the investigations are done so all of these things sort of sort of triaging out patients referring patients out patients being seen by like nurse practitioners or whatever means that emergency doctors their job is becoming more and more our job is becoming more and more complex and then things like healthcare AI coming along that's going to suck up if the, the reason the, the thing that healthcare AI may be able to tackle is the simple healthcare conditions right you put your vital signs into this machine you, you tell them what your symptoms are and it spits out a diagnosis and an investigation and treatment plan and whatever and and then this 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 patient doesn't need to be seen by a doctor because this healthcare AI this hypothetical healthcare AI model comes along and fixes the issue but then it will even more just lead to more and more complex patients being left over for the doctors. And then when you think about like KPIs of like number of patients seen per hour, right? Like you used to be able to expect X amount of patients to be seen, let's say 10 patients in 10 hours for like a junior doctor, right? But then if your patients become more and more complex because all the easy stuff gets triaged out to somewhere else, then you're left with the more and more complex patients that take longer and longer and longer and it's going to look like you're not doing a good job. Yeah, I think that's the that's the complexity and I feel that when you talk when you're talking about the KPIs there I want to bring it back to the debates that you were involved in meeting some of the candidates who would kind of spit out party lines, putting out these ideas and putting out things that to the voter base sound great. What you've experienced in your conversations about health talking with other other MPs, is there anything that you you take out of that? I think for me, again, it goes back to that imposter syndrome thing again, right? So when I come to a debate, I'm like, okay, so my experience leading up to this campaign is that I've been a healthcare worker. I've always been a healthcare worker since, well, essentially like 
get, got into medical school and then became a doctor. That's my life so far, basically, right? So I don't have experience in other sectors. I don't have experience in infrastructure or the economy, business, things like that. I don't have experience in that. And I'm happy mm. to say that. And so when it comes to debate, sometimes I'm a little bit like less sure of myself when I talk about these things, unless I've done my research, which is why I spend a lot of time <laughs> leading up to you, debates. You I spent a lot of time like reading about what's happening in the news right now. What are these big topic, big hot topics? What's the research? What's the evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to go there empty handed and not know what I'm talking about. But then I feel like when I see and hear how other politicians talk, I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And so you've got politicians who have no real experience working in the fields that they've got portfolios on or their minister of whatever. And they feel more than happy to freely talk about this topic that they have no prior experience on. And a lot of it comes to like health again. So, you know, we've got, you know, our outgoing minister of health was a doctor, was a doctor and our incoming one is also a doctor. So, which you know, there's unusual. that, which is unusual because most yeah. ministers of health, you know, haven't been healthcare professionals, but thinking about other politicians, they're, they're all happy to, very happy to talk about health, very happy to, for example, talk about things like putting targets in place for like emergency department wait times. And the thing is that a target which, which, is good, right? Yeah. A target is good if it's about monitoring where our problem emergency departments, where which places need more resources, right? But at the moment we're in the situation where we don't really have much resources. We've got a very finite amount of emergency healthcare workers in New Zealand and putting that target on, like it, it, it depends on what they're going to do with that target. They've not really talked about it because if the target was to say minimal hospital emergency department, which is chronically been struggling for decades. If we put a target there to say, okay, well, we'll we will show how bad things are in middle more emergency departments so that we can shift more healthcare workers in there or increase the amount of um, permanent staff we can hire there, right? And we, we, we will maybe like put a targeted salary so that people who work in that department mm-hmm. get more pay than like elsewhere or whatever, because it's pretty shocking. When I talk to other people who've worked there, they're like, yeah, it's pretty bad there. And we get, when we get patients who don't want to go there, bypass Middlemore Hospital to come to other hospitals, they're like, yeah, it's really bad there. So everything's telling me that things are not going well there. So slapping on a target isn't going to magically make things faster for the wait times. But if the target is there to one, you know, gather the data and to actually redirect resources, then it could work, but it remains to be seen. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. But also it's when you look at historically how targets have been used, give it me doesn't heap, give a lot heaps, of hope. No, not, not heaps of hope, but um, I think a lot of healthcare workers probably didn't really know who or what to vote for this year. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were a lot that didn't vote. Well, there were, were, was it a million people that didn't? Yeah, that about voted? a million people who could have voted didn't vote. <sighs> Boy. Yeah, a lot of them younger people, a lot of them lower socioeconomic people. You could have you know, voted and I an, think entirely, were, an entirely new Yeah, party. exactly. And, you know, there were a lot of reports on election day of voting booths with, you know, huge wait times errors, IT issues and things like that. And it's just, oh. It's just sounds very fishy to me. Sounds very fishy. Sounds, I know, mean, it's just not resourced in the, in the right way. And I'm, yeah, it's tricky. Reflections on this election campaign, I think, you know, because when we, when we said that we were going to do it, because, um, you know, I, I, I had to make it like a team decision, <laughs> well, right? Well, initially because when you said, initially, you were initially told, oh, look, 
it's not going to require too much effort. But you just turn up to the debates, you kind of do whatever, keep your head down. You don't, it's not too much time, not too much effort. And I think that you had that in your head until you realized how competitive you were. And then you realized, no, no, no. I don't do things by half measures. <laughs> <laughs> and so you threw yourself into it with everything you had. And, um, but I think that was a good thing in a way. You learned a lot. I think, I think it was a really good experience. I met a lot of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, some really great organisations out there and learned about a lot of people's experiences. And I think I honestly wish that more people got involved in politics. I think it's... More politics from, is for everyone, More people from right? health. More, more people, people from, from health, health, but more people in general, right? Because yeah. I think politics is for everyone and we want a parliament that is reflective of the population that they serve, right? Mm, we want, mm. we don't want a parliament that's just full of career politicians. No. We want a, a parliament that's got people from all walks of life, all sorts of different expertise. Exactly. Yeah. Whether that be, you know, nurses and doctors to firefighters to farmers, you know. Uh, everyone needs to have <laughs> everyone, their, everyone, everyone needs, needs to, to be able say. to have their say, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's quite... Yeah. I think it was what was really difficult about this, the result was that we had a really good party vote result for a very like low budget campaign overall. 2.07% for a party with next to nothing and only 13 candidates, right? I think it was fantastic. But that barrier to entry of the 5% threshold to get into parliament is huge. And that's probably why we haven't really seen any new parties come in into MMP without a handshake or a cup of tea, yeah, that without, kind of thing, yeah. a special deal, or, or someone who's already a well-known MP leading a new party. No, th th those sorts of things. It's just really but quite also, challenging. Yeah, but also the major parties are sort of disincentivized from doing that anyway because... they don't want to share power. They don't want to share power. And I, also, as the national party, have seen they let the act party sort of get in basically through david seymour winning this epsom seat that you've, you've stood in as the electorate and they were on like 0.5 percent of the vote the party vote you know which was nothing but they won the seat but now you look at them and they're like pushing 10 percent, aren't they so it's like they've seen now how you get a toe in the door and you can really But I mean, at open. the same time, it's like, well, a lot of ACT voters, there, there are certain things that I could agree with ACT, things like the pushing for like the euthanasia bill. I think that's about human rights to be able to make those choices for yourself, right? In mm. terms of like, if you've got a, a significantly debilitating and life-limiting illness, right? And so there are certain things I'm like, okay, they've got some good ideas. A lot of the stuff I do disagree with them on, but you know, you I think if you find any two parties, they'll have lots of things that they disagree with each yeah. other. And I think a lot of the a lot of the voters for ACT were probably disenfranchised or disillusioned like national voters, right? So if National did a better job, Act probably wouldn't have so many voters, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And similar for like Labour and Greens. The Greens did very well this year, but probably mainly because Labour did so poorly, right? Like I, do, I think those parties don't necessarily bring people Greens from would, the other would, side. I would like to disagree with you, but perhaps. Well, I mean, they, yeah. I mean, let's, well, I mean, I think Chloe did, I don't know if you want to include this, but I think Chloe did a fantastic job in Auckland Central, you know, to retain that seat. You know, that was a very difficult seat and, you know, they'd done a good job to get two more electorate seats as well, but they won them off red seats. So if they were able to win them off blue seats, I think that would be, you know, a really, really good achievement. But, you know, you just look at Labour and they've done, a, you know, not a very good job this campaign and they've lost a lot of the party vote and like electorate seats. So 
yeah, I, uh, I, I think, you know, those other, you know, side minor parties, they win votes and seats off of the major parties when they're not doing so well. Yeah. They say that, that we don't ever vote a new government in. We just vote the old one out. And I think in this instance, it wasn't a resounding, it wasn't a resounding, oh, we really want a national like government. It was, we just don't want the, the government we've got. When I was talking about the threshold, is it? I think one of the reasons why people are against reducing the threshold for entry in terms of the party vote to enter into parliament is that people are worried about these sort of fringe parties getting into parliament, right? They're worried about, I won't, I won't name names, but you, you know who I'm talking about, you know, the, 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 the fringe parties getting into parliament. And the I Brian Tamakis <laughs> and stuff. Won't name names. But, they, but they're also representative of a certain part of the population. Yeah, and I think, you know, this might be controversial, but I think people want to have their voices heard. And if they don't make their voices heard in this way, they'll find other ways to make their voices heard. So, you know, controversial opinion, maybe we should have, you know, the MMP threshold lowered. And then, you know, if some of these fringe parties were able to come through, they'd have one or two seats in parliament, maybe. I don't think you'd be able to do much if you had like one or two seats in parliament and nobody really wanted to do, you know, do business with you in terms of the other parties, right? right? Yeah, you're completely right. That's exactly it. If no one wants to work with you, well... Then you won't be able to achieve anything, right? Yeah. You know, when we talk about, you know, David Seymour and ACT, well, you know, National and ACT have history, you know, from previous leader Don Brash being a previous leader of National Party. So they've got history. They can work together, you know, mm -hmm. but I don't think they necessarily would be able to work with... Brian Tamaki or Liz Gunn. <laughs> I thought you said you weren't going to name names. <laughs> yeah. And your dad, your dad's view is that um, we should just lower the threshold to like basically what one seat is, which yeah. would be like something like 0.82%. Something like that, you know, because then you'd have a parliament that was actually representative. Then you wouldn't have this whole wasted vote thing, which yeah. is probably the biggest bugbear of this campaign, you know, yeah. trying to get people to realise that actually... If everyone just voted for the party that they believed in, you know, we'd probably get a different looking parliament. Mm. And you might even get increased participation yeah. in democracy because, yeah, you, you're right. You'll find there'll be more there'll be more people with uh, more incensed to get involved in politics because you go, oh, well, I think it comes I down don't to need the, to suddenly like, get 120,000 people to vote for me to reach the 5% the threshold. I think it comes down to like political apathy, right? Because apathy is probably the greatest enemy of democracy because people don't feel inspired to vote. People don't feel inspired to read up about policies and parties, let alone actually show up on the day to vote or, you know, advance voting or whatever. And this comes down to education as well because, you know, being 29 – I graduated high school in 2011 and I received no education really about the political system. All I got was, hey, you're graduating when you're 17. You should enroll to vote so that you're ready to vote when you're 18. That's, that's, that's all the education that I had on mm. the political system. So everything that I've learned is through reading a little bit on the news here and there, basically, leading up until a year ago. That's basically the knowledge that I had about the political system is that, yeah, yeah, two ticks is what you do when you go and vote. So it's unsurprising that people come out of school and don't really know who to vote for. 
And, you know, I think a lot of the time it's... Well, we don't, we on, don't make it accessible for we, young we, people. We but, don't. You know, also, a we big shout we out to... given people the tools or the understanding to be like, why is what this party's saying good? Or why is what this party's saying? Why does it align with your values yeah. or not? Which is why I'd like a huge shout out to Chloe Swarbrook, because I think one of the best things that she has done is made politics more accessible for young people. She's inspired a lot of young people to get involved through her run for mayoralty and then running for the Greens. I think she's done a really good job at getting young people involved in politics and it's really mm. exciting to see things like Hana Rafati winning, hopefully winning that uh, electorate seat, um, that, that Māori electorate seat. Mm. Uh, and so she's only 21, so she, really amazing speeches she put on talking about the Kohanga Reo um, generation is, being, is here now. So I think that hopefully in the next election we'll have even more, well, well hopefully we'll have more young people turn out because i don't know what the young people turnout was for this election. Yeah, but it goes back to what you were saying about how you're talking about trying to create change, even with the podcast and with the political campaign, and that it's kind of incremental. But it is that sort of you go on, you speak out, but you can inspire a couple others and those other people can go on and it sort of can snowball. And so, yeah, it's really good to see younger people getting into parliament because it shows people that, you know, from whatever background of whatever walk of life actually that's an achievable thing and it should be aspirational yeah. yeah well I really I think my one hope in this campaign is that I have inspired more people to think about participating in politics and that I've inspired more people to think about you know speaking out in terms of you know people who are healthcare professionals speaking out about the issues in healthcare because it's something that affects all of us I think this campaign was really challenging and it took up so much time and energy like it was just so all-consuming and you know that's probably one of the reasons why we weren't able to get to more podcast episodes which we have a couple more in the bank we do but I think it's given us more fire to talk about more of these real issues in further episodes further interviews to come it's given us a lot of good connections with people who are politicians now or people who are retired politicians or people from other various organisations that I've met. So I think it's been a huge, amazing opportunity. I want more people to do it. I've been telling everyone that they should think about running for politics. You, you say, you, it's, it's become a running thing now. You, everyone you meet, you're like, oh, you should run. You should run. Well, I think people, well, I think the thing you is, is that I never thought about it until someone said you should do it, right? And sometimes you just need that one person to give you the opportunity and tell you, no, you can do it. You'd be really good at this for you to be, for a light bulb to switch on and be like, oh, maybe I could do this. And I've realised, yeah, I could do it. And I think I could do this again. I don't know if 2026 is the year that I'll do it again. You know, I think we'll have to think about this again because it's a huge undertaking. But also money money, money as well. Money as well. Yeah. We had to work during this as well. We didn't have the luxury of being paid by parliament to also be running for parliament at the same time that, you know, mm. incumbent MPs have that luxury. So we had to work at the same time and people were asking me, oh, why are you like doing the politics? And I'm like, oh, because the job is like really terrible. And, um, <laughs> and then there would be times where maybe I hadn't been at work for like a week or two. And then I come back picking up extra shifts and then I'd be like, oh yeah, no, this is why. Sometimes I forget why I did this politics thing. And then I'd go into work and I'd be like, oh yeah, 
this is why I did it because it's horrendous in here. There's a lot of people who are really sick um, and a lot of people who are sick because of things that they were out of their control. Because of the decisions that have been made by politicians in the last couple of decades. That's right. That's right. I think that's another one. And that's another <laughs> to quote you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think I think this probably summarizes why things have been a bit quiet. We didn't want to use the podcast as a platform to promote my political career. You no, know, I we want to be really careful clear. about we want to that. Keep them separate. I think it's also nice for you guys to hear about, you know, why we've been busy and you know why we haven't put out any episodes recently. We got more to come. We got more to come. Yeah, we're, we're, we're certainly. This is not the end. This is uh, just the beginning. <laughs> why do you keep quoting me? <laughs> Hey, look, I'm sure you're not the only person to have said that. I'm sure it's been said in probably many a movie and TV show and film. One last question. Oh, yes. Right? Do, you, do you want to ask me the question or do you want me to ask you the question? Um, oh, let me think of a good question. Okay, let me think of a... Because as the producer and editor of these podcasts lately... I've been critical of some of these last questions because okay, they normally, fine. it started out as like, oh, what's your favorite ice cream flavor and stuff like that. And then slowly it got to like, you know, actually quite serious questions. So I was like, oh, the whole point of the last question was- Okay, fine, to- fine, fine, okay, fine, fine, okay. fine. You ask a silly question. Then. Okay. Um, what, okay. What is your favorite animal? My favorite animal. I really like giraffes. Why? Because they're so funny. Like, who would design a giraffe? You know, like they're so they're so tall. Like their necks are so long. Um, yeah, I just think that they're so funny. Is it also because your scrubs look often like giraffes? A little bit. Know? And I just think giraffes are so funny because their necks are so long. Like, you know, if you in your mind, if you designed your own animal, you know, to be able to function in the wild and you know be safe against predators and thrive, you know, I don't think you would design a giraffe. <laughs> it seems like the kind of animal a four-year-old would draw. Yeah, it seems like an animal that drawing. shouldn't exist. And I think they just they look like such wonderful creatures. I've never, I don't know if I've ever met one. Yeah. <laughs> Do they not have some Auckland Zoo? Yeah, probably. It's been a while. I, I don't know. Oh, maybe we should go and say hello uh, yeah. to the giraffes. Anyway, stay tuned for future Revolving Door episodes. We've got a lot more to come. And as I said, this is just the beginning. Thanks. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti or waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.